Welcome back to Season 2 of Behind the Wings, a podcast produced by Wings Over the Rockies Air and Space Museum in Denver, Colorado. And we've got a lot to explore. Stories about how history shapes aviation today, trailblazers in space, and up-close looks at iconic aircraft of the past, present, and future. It's time to go Behind the Wings. Wow, we've made it to episode 12, and we are so glad to have you along for the ride. We're finding our rhythm with this thing, you know, and, and we're so glad to have you along for the ride. Make sure you don't miss an episode and be sure to subscribe in your favorite podcast app, maybe when you're listening right now. Also, give us a rating. It's the most important way you can help other space nerds, av geeks, history buffs, and new people discover the Behind the Wings podcast. Now, we're excited to bring you a special episode today. Hey, everybody, I'm your host, Rick Crandall. With me, as always, is Wings Over the Rockies president and CEO, John Barry. All right, John, what do we have for folks today? Well, strap in, folks. Uh, we are going to space with a very special guest who blazed her own trail, defying the grip of Earth's gravity and breaking a glass ceiling into the cosmos. Our guest today is retired pilot for the United States Air Force and astronaut for NASA, Eileen Collins. We'll hear from Eileen in her own words soon enough, but Rick, give us a bit more on what we can expect in today's show. You bet, John, and, and there's no doubt in my mind that this is gonna be a great episode. Colonel Collins has lived an amazing life, and though she has retired from the NASA astronaut program, her mission to share her story and inspire the next generation of explorers is far from over. You know, many of us can only dream of a career like hers, from her achievements as the first woman to command an American space mission, the first to pilot the space shuttle, to her early years as one of the Air Force's first female pilots. Eileen is one of those pioneers who forever changed the course and trajectory of space exploration. You know, this segment is uh, really cool because Eileen has been part of Wings Over the Rockies now for a number of years as our co-chair for the teacher flight program that we started, oh, about seven years ago. And uh, she has been incredibly uh, contributory towards that effort. But her stories, her insights, her personal accounts, I mean, all of those things are going to be beneficial to our audience. It is a fascinating story, and it's time to go right where you suggested, behind the wings. Let's get started. Eileen Collins, welcome to the show. Thank you. All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna start with the the easy stuff. We'll get into the other stuff in a bit, but just you, you know, as as you would normally do, uh, uh, speaking to a group, just give a bit of an introduction of yourself as you like people to know. Well, my name is Eileen Collins, and I'm a former Air Force pilot, test pilot, former NASA astronaut. Currently, I'm I'm kind of a consultant. I do a lot of different things: uh, speaking, writing, visiting different events. I like to uh, spread the news of the importance of STEM education for our kids. Um, and probably the last thing I want to say is uh, I was uh, the author of a recent book, along with my co-author, Jonathan Ward, To the Glass Ceiling to the Stars. And I know it has glass ceiling in the title here, but it's we wrote the book for men and women, boys and girls. So hopefully people uh, will enjoy it. That's nice. All right. So in addition to your time uh, in the Air Force and, and as a NASA astronaut, which we'll get into later in the podcast, you did write that book, that that memoir to tell your story for the first time through the glass ceiling, the star. 
Towards the end of the book, you write, I wrote this book to stop that pesticky question I've heard so many times since 1995. Where is your book? Now, I, I'm, I'm sure that's part of us, but tell us a bit about the book and why you had to tell the story. Well, the book does fall in the category of memoirs, and it, it pretty much you know covers my life story. Uh, there's so much more I could say. We did have to edit quite a bit out. But how I grew up, I grew up in a relatively small town, didn't have a lot of advantages. My family didn't have money, were on government assistance, lived in government housing for seven years. My parents split up when I was nine years old. So it, it, there's some pretty interesting childhood stories in there. I'm really proud, though, of my family, my parents, my hometown. And I tell the story about how I decided to become a pilot, which mostly came from books. Read a lot of books as a kid. I remember coming home from the library with stacks of books. And that was, I think, one of the highlights of my childhood. I was not a great athlete. Uh, I didn't graduate top in my class. I was actually kind of an average student. But what happened, and this is, I think, is the important story, is when I started reading about pilots and the adventures that they had and the exploration that they did and the great missions that they flew, I decided that's what I wanted to do. And I wanted to be a military pilot. I had read about World War II, pilots, Korea, Vietnam, and I wanted to be one of them. So I think that's what lit the fire, got me going. And I joined the Air Force, uh, Air Force ROTC. Uh, back in those days, women were not allowed into the service academy. So ROTC was really my leading choice uh, to be commissioned to become a pilot. I was in the first class of women to go through pilot training at my base in Oklahoma, Vance Air Force Base. And just the story of uh, being an instructor, being a C-141 pilot. I was a professor at the Air Force Academy. Uh, technically, I was an assistant professor. I was quite young back then. Uh, test pilot school. And then also the astronaut selection process, which I know a lot. I get a lot of questions on that. But I talk about how it worked for me back in 1990. And then astronaut training flight selection, and then the flights that I flew. And I end the book with some uh, stories on uh, and advice on leadership and teamwork. So that's pretty much it in a nutshell. Um, I look back and I think, wow, was that my life? Did I live that? Was I that person? I mean, it's, it's kind of an interesting perspective as I look back on that. And uh, I did mention earlier, but I do. I did raise two children. They're in their twenties now. Neither one of them are interested in being a pilot because I think kids don't always want to do what their parents did. Yeah, I think that's true of most kids. Yeah. Well, you know, Eileen, that's a wonderful start on how we're going to try to delve in your life and get your insights. You know, now at Wings, we have pathways for all sorts of people to find the way to find an aerospace career. Now, our students, uh, and you know this, um, they finished building an RB-12 airplane that I got the privilege of flying. took three and a half years to build. And it's uh, actually, we're starting to build a second one now. Uh, they're learning to fly drones and getting their pilot's license. We even have opportunities for teachers to bring the wonder of flight back to the program, something you know quite a bit about, especially being uh, a former teacher. So this is part for everyone out there trying to find their own pathway. So for the beginning, let's dive into your journey, your pathway towards the glass ceiling. So you talked a little bit about how you got started and uh, 
Was there a first flight or some moment that really got you started on your pathway to be a pilot? Well, I would have to say the first thing that got me started on my pathway to be a pilot was reading books. But it's, it, as far as maybe an event that happened, it took a lot of courage for me to take that first step to go to my airport and ask them to teach me how to fly. And this is where I think one of the things that you do is so important is when you do outreach and you try to bring the kids there, um, that helps those kids that maybe need a little prodding to get that first step. Um, I was uh, 20 years old when I finally uh, went to the local airport to learn how to fly. They did not have programs like uh, the Wings Over the Rockies has today, which I think are are just outstanding, it's especially the outreach to the teachers as well, not just to the young people. But I was very afraid that the people at the uh, FBO, the fixed base operator at my airport, were going to say no and tell me, you know, you're a girl, you're too young. Uh, so I called them and they said, yeah, come on up. And I was so wrong about the fear that I had because they were so happy to see me. They welcomed me. They got me into ground school, got me into uh, associated with uh, two of their instructors. I still remember these two today, but I think the event uh, that really sticks out was my first solo. Um, I, I don't remember which flight it was, maybe my seventh or eighth flight, where my instructor, uh, A.J. Davis, who former F-4 pilot from Vietnam, we had done three touch and goes. I'm getting ready to add power for the fourth uh, takeoff, and he grabbed my hand on the throttle and pulled it back and said, I'm really tired of this. Why don't you just pull over there in the taxiway and let me out? I had no idea what he was talking about. I, this guy's gone crazy. So I pulled over and he said, you're going solo. And that was his way to send me solo. And he got out of the plane, walked through the grass back to the uh, tower. And I, he told me to do three touch and goes. And I took off and I had my first in-flight emergency for a 20-year-old college uh. kid. When my door popped open, that was an emergency. <laughs> <laughs> and I was you know, maybe a couple hundred feet off the ground. And I looked over and my door was open and I <laughs> closed it. And I said, guess I'll just keep going. <laughs> so I say that to answer your question, I would say my first solo and how great the people were at my local airport that were excited about teaching me how to fly. Well, now you've gone that, you've got that experience. You got your uh, flying experience here in the civilian sector. Now you're in the Air Force. Tell us a little bit about uh, the pilot training. Being one of the first women to be in pilot training, certainly in the first class advance Air Force base. And, uh, you know, what was it like? Well, there were four of us women in a class of 40 pilots, student pilots. And we were split into two groups of 20, and that was, that was our flight. So two women were in one and two women in the other. I set a goal for myself that I was going to be the best pilot I could be. I didn't want the fact that we were the first women to distract from that. And fortunately, our wing commander was very supportive of that. He told us, you're not doing anything outside of your training. You know, no uh, speaking or public uh, interviews or nothing uh, to distract uh -huh. from your training. They were actually very supportive of the four of us. I would say the men were wonderful to work with. I thought that there would be some pushback, that there were people that didn't want us there. And I would think that there might have been a couple here and there, but uh, by far, the pilots and the Air Force family uh, did their best to make sure that 
uh, the women uh, fit into the culture and that we did as that we did as well as we could became the best pilots we could be. Unfortunately, one of the four women in my class did not graduate. Uh, she made it to the T38s, but uh, because of the program requirements, she wasn't able to graduate. She wasn't able to meet those requirements, but the other three of us did graduate. So I have nothing but good things to say. I mean, occasionally we hear stories where the women feel like they weren't accepted. There might have been some areas where you know, the, the guys are telling jokes and, you know, maybe they're a little bit off color and I uh, didn't really participate in that. And I tried to be as professional as I could throughout uh, the entire training. And I think uh, the four of us women did that. And, and by the way, the other pressure that we had on us was we were in a test program. So we weren't just trying to graduate and get our Air Force wings for ourselves. How we did was going to determine whether women in the future were able to apply and attend pilot training. So that was another reason. I think I uh, did a lot of chair flying. I know I did a lot of chair flying. And, and that's when you, you know, before, maybe the night before your flight, you sit at home in your chair with your checklist and you mentally go through the entire flight for the next day. And I think the chair flying really helped me do well in pilot training. And they asked me to come back as an instructor. And so I spent uh, to actually almost five years advanced Air Force Base as a student and as an instructor. Um, it just loved the job. It was uh, fantastic. I was very lucky, uh, fortunate that I was able to do that. So now you're a pilot. You know, for a lot of people, I, I would think that is a glass ceiling, right? That's that's what their aspiration would would have been. What what was it like when you got there? I imagine, you know, wow, I've made it, but but now you're an operation pilot, you're starting to do some test flights and at some point maybe as you're uh kind of drinking through a garden hose a little bit, maybe a moment of uh, goodness gracious, what have I gotten myself into here? Well, I would have to say drinking from a garden hose, that was that describes the Air Force Test Pilot School. You know, I think when it came to pilot training, uh, I was a T-38 instructor. I was a C-141 co-pilot aircraft commander instructor. I thought they were pretty well-paced training programs. When I attended the Air Force Test Pilot School in 1989-1990, that was a very aggressive program and probably one of the most difficult ones I've done in my life. Um, not only do you, and I didn't have an aerospace engineering degree. My degree was in math and uh, operations research, which is kind of computer science and analytical algorithms and whatnot. And I didn't really have the aerospace engineering foundation. So that for me was, <laughs> yes, definitely breaking from fire hose through the sure. academics, as well as the speaking, the writing, Every flight that you flew, you had to have a, a test plan. Uh, and then after you were done flying, you would have to write a, a report. I also want to add that when I finally attended the Air Force Test Pilot School, because I had applied so many times and didn't, then for a variety of reasons, by the time I eventually was accepted, I was a major. And I outranked every other student in the class. There were 25 <laughs> of us. So they made me class leader. And I thought, well, this is going to be interesting. I've got all these fighter pilots here. And of course, I'm not only a woman, but I'm a, a heavy aircraft driver. And so I'm kind of like out in left field there. And we had a couple of engineers uh, in the group also. But I thought, well, I'm kind of a misfit being the class leader. 
but I, I did want to do it. I really, I really wanted to just be the best test pilot I could be, but sure. now I've got all these additional responsibilities. Yeah. But I made it through it, you know, a lot of it was one day at a time. And the other thing that was important about that, the very first day that I met with my class and I had to, I'm running the meeting, I asked for volunteers and because I was not going to do all that work myself. So it's important as a leader that you, I want to say, share your work duties and uh, let people volunteer for what they want to do. Sure. And on the first day, they'll all volunteer. If you wait a week or a month and they're so overloaded, no one's going to volunteer for anything. So I tried to get all that done on the first day. And we, we had a great class. In fact, my test pilot class still has reunions. What, what a great, I want to say, a challenge. Uh, the Air Force test pilot school, it's different today. They've actually added space to the Air Force test pilot school. Okay. But uh, the line between air and space is kind of a gray area. Yeah. No, you're right. I mean, we've covered so much. So your journey to become a pilot, then a test pilot, then a now astronaut candidate. In so many ways, is a, is a dream come true. I mean, how cool is that I mean, for anyone? And at that same time, this is kind of where another story begins. So let's talk about launching into space. Let's talk about you being an astronaut. When did that start? And, you know, what was the inclination that you had to apply to become a NASA astronaut? Well, I've wanted to be an astronaut since fourth grade, and <laughs> I didn't really get the astronaut idea from books because there were no books written about astronauts back then, uh, part of the reason why I uh, wanted to write my book. But back in the mid-1960s when I was uh, just a kid, I read a magazine, and it was Junior Scholastic, and there was an article on the Gemini astronauts. From that day, I decided I'm going to be an astronaut. And I should say that there were no women in the group that I was reading about. Uh-huh. The first woman astronaut was Sally Ride, and, you know, she came in in 1978. But there was no Sally Ride back in those days. So, you know, it was interesting that I just thought, well, I'm just going to be a lady astronaut. And I didn't think there was any barrier to that. I just thought, I'll just, someday they'll have women and I'll be one of them. So I never told anybody that I wanted to be an astronaut because I knew they would say, oh, you can't do that. So I just kept it pretty much a secret. Until I was in the Air Force in 1983, I filled out an application to the astronaut program, and I never sent it in. I was all on paper back in those days. I was just barely qualified. I wasn't competitive. I never sent that application in, and that started gnawing at me, like, why didn't I send that application? And so the next time around, I did apply. There was a Challenger accident. That was in 1986, though that class was canceled. So long story short, I eventually applied again in 1989, and I was in the test pilot school at the time, and I was called for the interview, which was uh, one week of mostly medical testing, Uh, but there was one one hour interview with a board of about 12 current astronauts. And I actually really enjoyed my interview. I thought the astronauts were very, friendly, cordial, Uh, they seemed really interested in uh, the things I had to say. And I thought, well, they're never gonna pick me because I'm still in the test pilot school, but they did. And I got a phone call from John Young, who was the commander of Apollo 16. John Young had walked on the moon, he was one of my heroes. And he called me and told me that I was uh, selected for the program. By the way, I interviewed as a mission specialist, but they selected me as a pilot. And in that phone call, John Young 
went through the whole thing about how the program works. And at the end, he said, do you have any questions? And I said, yes, am I going to be a pilot or a mission specialist? And he said, oh, yeah, pilot. You're going to be our first woman pilot. And that was on January 16th of 1990. I I actually relived it in my book. Um, And then we started training the following summer. All right. So since you mentioned the book, I'll go there. You you write in the book, I find it crazy that the first woman pilot and commander was me. How in the world did that happen? So, you know, you can guess my question, right? How how in the world did that happen? Well, you know, that's I, I still feel that way. You know, how in the world was it me? Because I look around at the women who are older than me, younger than me, that are my peers. And it could have been any of them because, you know, I really believe if you have the uh, ability to get through uh, Air Force pilot training, that you have the skills, operational skills to be an astronaut. But there were so few women who were graduates of a test pilot school. I'm going to guess there were less than five of us when I interviewed. So as I look back, I think it really, the opportunity I had really had a lot to do with timing, uh, you know, when I was born, frankly, and the choices that I made leading up to that. The first woman pilot astronaut was going to be somebody. And it just turned out to be me. Well, I really don't know the answer to the question, you know, how it ended up being me. Yeah. Um, I say it's a opportunity, hard work, and chance, they all sort of came together. No, Eileen, there's so much to talk about, but, you know, let's jump ahead a little bit to February 3rd, 1995. First woman to uh, pilot a space shuttle, STS-63. You know, it's after midnight, you're lying on your back in an 80-pound pressure suit. Uh, Take us there. What was it like leaving Earth for the first time? Well, I was very focused. And I wanted to do the best job I could possibly do. I did not want to make a mistake. Now, most of us pilots understand what cockpit resource management is, CRM. And I tried to keep the principles of cockpit resource management in my mind throughout that mission. And that's, to me, it's know your job and do your job. Be aware of what the other crew members are doing and then communicate with each other. So I didn't think about the fact that I was the first woman pilot, I was aware of that, but I didn't want to focus on it because I thought that would be distracting. I wanted to also, in addition to do a perfect job, which turned out I did make a few mistakes, but um, overall, uh, the mission was tremendously successful and our crew worked together wonderfully. And that is what stands out to me. And then maybe one of the things you were getting at in your question is the thrill of the launch. My commander, Jim Weatherby, told the crew, no yelling, no yeehaws, no screaming on the launch like it's a thrill ride or something. I want everybody focused in case something happens, it's a malfunction or an emergency. I want everybody to, I'm going to say, perform the way we trained. So we were all very focused on the launch. But I will tell you, launching in February is different from launching in the summer because we go through the jet stream. And, you know, the jet stream is, you know, around 40,000 feet plus or minus and when the shuttle or any space uh, rocket launches, it's trying to keep itself in a certain uh, attitude and keep itself in a certain position. And when the jet stream is pushing you, what happens is the gimbling on the boosters in the engines will rock and tilt, pitch and yaw. And it, those great big actuators and control services are slamming around. And of course, you're being slammed to the right and left and fore and aft. 
And that's quite disconcerting. It's like we used to say, it's like driving a Volkswagen down a, a rocky road. <laughs> the way you're getting shook around. And yeah, I mean, if you try to write something, you'd never be able to read it afterwards. And all that shaking happens in first stage, which goes to about two minutes. And once those solid rocket boosters separate, we're well above the jet stream at that point. It's a very, very smooth ride. But it's accelerating. And you, you're thrown back in your seat with a 3G uh, acceleration. 3Gs meaning three units of gravity. I describe that saying, like, if you weighed 100 pounds on Earth, under 3G acceleration, you'd weigh 300 pounds. And so that's the kind of force you have on your body is you're accelerating um, up through about eight and a half minutes. And then when the main engine shut down, which happens, by the way, on, on basically it's like an autopilot, on the computer sends the command for VECO, main engine shutdown, that has to happen a millisecond because we're trying to, we're trying to rejoin with the Russian space station. So that'll happen automatically, and then you go from this 3G acceleration instantly to 0G. So you're not thrown forward. We just all of a sudden start floating. Of course, you're strapped in, but your helmet will rise. Uh, the, your checklist pages will fan out. Uh, the tethers will start floating in front of you. Um, there's dust in the air. Um, I took the pen out of my flight suit pocket, and I let go of it, and it floated right there in front of me. It's a very mysterious, eerie environment. And all, and then after all that noise of the launch, after Miko, all you hear is this very quiet fan. You can hear the fans running in the background. Wow. It, it's quite the experience. I really believe that space tourism is going to be extremely successful for many, many different reasons. You know, one of them is the experience of the launch and that you, um, first of all, you survived it. And now you're in space, which is a dream uh, for me that I've had my entire life. That that was fascinating to hear some of the, you know, the minor details, the, the things that you are experiencing there that we're not privy to. I don't know, maybe now with, it seems we've got cameras that are working everywhere and everything we launch these days. Maybe uh, those of us that are tied to the earth will have a little bit better visual of that in, in things that are upcoming. But Boy, we, I, I, that's the best description I've heard, Eileen, and I really do appreciate that. But, you know, if, if, if you want to stay earthbound and have that experience, there's uh, Kennedy Space Center has a ride you can go on, and there's also one um, at Disney at Epcot. So there are those experiences out there that you can get a lot safer than an actual launch and a lot nice. cheaper. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, you know, I'm going to pick up the next question here and uh, comment. You know, you've piloted the STS-63 in 95, STS-84 in 97, and then became the first woman to command a space mission with STS-93 in 1999, just 10 years after you really applied to be an astronaut. It's amazing. Now, for those of us watching a launch, and for you as well, is that, that excitement, the adventure. My God, you know, there's a part that is more behind the scenes or, or even, dare I say, behind the wings we do the countless hours of training preparation simulations memorizing procedures these are big missions a big responsibility to be in charge of what did you learn that was really takes a pilot you know to become a space shuttle mission commander well there's so many answers to that question i, I would say building on my experience as an operational military pilot and test pilot i learned that it's still important to memorize things and I think if you have procedures memorized, it helps you 
uh, with your confidence, and it also helps you execute those procedures real time, even if you have the checklist in front of you. I also have learned that experience and practice is very, very important. So we had simulators and we would practice what we call nominal procedures as well as malfunctions. And then later as a commander, I learned how important the team is. And we all know that the team is important, but when you're the commander and you're ultimately responsible for the success of that mission, and you know that you cannot possibly do all that work yourself. You have got to rely on your people. My first command was before the Columbia accident, and my second command was after the accident. And I would say that my leadership style was different uh, the way I led those two missions based on what I learned about, you know, the, how the NASA system works, how the culture was, uh, things that I didn't know uh, before the accident. On my second mission as commander, I wasn't as much of an autocrat. I was more of a, I want to say, a person that would listen, and it was important that the people around me were willing to speak up and they didn't feel like just because an astronaut was there, they had to just say all the good things that were happening. I wanted people to feel like if there was something that they didn't like the way it was working, they were willing to tell me that and not feel like I was going to judge them or turn them in or cause some kind of problem in their career. And I really, I think I became more of a people person. So I would say to answer your question, uh, the importance of leadership is not only knowing your job, but also being a very good listener and having integrity in the sense that, that people around you are willing to not just trust you now, but trust you in the future and trust your intentions. You know, I, you know, I want for the benefit of the audience to understand this perspective. You have served as a mission commander on a space shuttle mission. Then we have the Columbia accident in 2003-06. So months and months and months later, after the investigation has gone on, NASA finally decides to go back into space, but you got the weight of the world on your shoulders. I mean, you're selected to be the commander of a mission after a major catastrophe that took the breath out of all of us. Step us through what your role was and, you know, what it felt like to be that person that was selected after a major catastrophe. Well, I, I frankly, I would say I was very confident and I wanted to lead that mission more than anything. I felt extremely well prepared from uh, the point of view of being able to fly the shuttle, operate the systems on the shuttle. I knew the people, I knew my crew, I knew the flight directors, I knew the program managers. I, I had worked at Kennedy Space Center, I had worked as a Capcom. I knew many of the people up at NASA headquarters. You know, I just, I, I felt extremely well prepared and extremely confident. And I mean, heck, I, I thought NASA, you know, maybe they felt like they stuck their neck out by asking a woman to do that. But I don't think, I know there was discussion as to whether should we change out uh, the crew after the accident. The NASA leadership decided to keep the four crew members, the core crew members, myself as commander, Jim Kelly as pilot, and then our two mission specialists, Steve Robinson and Soichi Noguchi, because of how well prepared we were and how confident we were in ourselves and how we had performed in training. And I really wanted to lead that mission. In fact, I remember the Monday after the accident, Monday morning, I went into my training manager, but I said to him, I'm going to fly this mission if it takes five years, and I'm all in. And we lost seven crew members, right? We lost our seven friends on Columbia. I did not want the shuttle program canceled, because what would that be saying about their sacrifice? I it mean, they gave their lives for something, a mission that was so important, the mission of exploring space. And to just cancel the program... Because right. it's risky was not 
the way I thought we should be going. And uh, NASA made the right decision by continuing the shuttle program. The purpose of the shuttle was to build the space station, right? We're going to fly the shuttle until the space station is built, and then we'll retire the program and go to something else. So that's my answer to the question, and I, I feel very strongly about that. But throughout the, I want to say, the accident recovery and then the return to flight and then all the training that we did, um, it was important that my crew stay as humble as possible and that we listen. We don't miss anything. That was a great answer to the question. Thank you very much for that. Uh, yeah, we've and we've got just a couple of minutes left here, Eileen. Of course, we could do you know the whole season's podcast with you for crying out loud. I I am hoping that generations now of young people, ones you meet at Wings and around the world, are as excited about space as I was in '69, like you when Neil Armstrong was walking on the moon. I, I, I think this Artemis generation, this is their moment. Don't you, don't you feel that way a little bit? Yes. It, let me say first of all, NASA is actually talking about that quite a bit. So Apollo was part of history. It still inspires young people, but young people want to look for, you know, what's what's the future? What is my life going to be? What are the hopes for the future? Young know, people want to take care of Earth. Want to make sure that you know, our little oasis here in the big, you know, deep dark space is still there generations from now, a millennia from now, that we can come back to and live as humans. So Artemis is taking us to the moon, where we will test all the equipment that needs to work properly for the future when we go to Mars. So this is a very important program, uh, it, as well as it being exciting and inspirational for our young people, encouraging them to take math, science, and engineering. Yeah. Uh, but it also is very important that humans uh, have a place to go outside of our planet Earth it's so hot. we can learn more about ourselves from a different perspective, and yet also, I want to say, expand humanity throughout yeah. the solar system and, and someday even beyond. Wow. So... I want to finish like this because you've used the word mission a lot and I've I've known you all of about 45 minutes now and what I've come to conclude is there's always a mission for Eileen Collins there's always a purpose there's always something driving you forward um we've talked about it a little bit with the Artemis generation already but what what is that mission now for you whatever your mission is okay so in my life it was for example get through pilot training or i needed to get through college get through test pilot school right. oh at one point my mission was how do i get selected as an astronaut and then i go all in on that but if you're too focused on yourself all the time, it leads to depression and unhappiness. That dis describes me. And I've got to stop thinking about, like, myself, you know, my clothes, my, you know, how many people are following me on Instagram or LinkedIn or whatever. You know, that stuff is not important. I think if you have a mission in your life and you say, that's what I'm going after, and part of that is helping other people, I think that's the way to happiness. And for me, I, I have two children, and I think raising my kids was one of the most rewarding experiences I've had. And I know not everybody has kids or can have kids, but, you know, there are things that you can do to help other people in the world. And back in the early days, I used to tell young people, oh, find your passion, do what you love. Well, that sounds great, but the reality of the world is you got to find where you are needed. And if you can combine that with your passion, great, but that's not always possible. So find a place where people need you, and then you will get up every morning with the energy and the perseverance to 
be able to keep going and not be thinking about yourself all the time, which doesn't really lead to happiness. Well, we're going to leave it right there and wrap this up. Thank you again, Eileen Collins, for joining us. That was really, really cool. I got to tell you, I loved her description of being strapped in, laying on her back, going through takeoff, what happens um, as you're going through the jet stream and up into the, the quieter area of space, what's happening inside with things floating in the dust. I mean, she was so descriptive. I thought that was really cool. Uh, what, did, what did you take away, John? You know, we all have, I would say, windows of history. And Eileen's window has been absolutely incredible. I mean, the first class in women to go to become pilots in the United States Air Force, the first pilot for NASA to fly in the space shuttle, and then to be the first female commander. But all of that combined uh, proves to me that this is a woman for history. She has a window on history that very few of us can really claim. And what she has to say and had to say in our podcast today will stand the test of time. It truly was a unique experience. Yeah, well said, my friend, well said. And that is going to do it, folks. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Wings. Be sure to visit wingsmuseum.org now to join the conversation and access the show notes. We'll be back soon with another episode of Behind the Wings. Head over to iTunes or wherever you listen to subscribe and leave a review. It helps us a lot and we really do appreciate it. And by the way, we'll see you next time on Behind the Wings. Thanks.